0: Uh, We looked, you can go ahead and turn to Colossians 3. Last week we looked at verses uh, 3 through 12 and we talked about uh, the things we're to put on as Christians and this morning we're going to look at the pleasurable commands really which come to the child of God who has put off the old self and put on the new self. Now that we've taken care of that, Paul has some instructions for us moving forward of um, some commands. Uh, you know that, that as I said last week, I just love how Paul teaches us in that, or really God teaches us in in the fact that we don't just uh, stop doing things, but God always provides us something to put in place of what we're to to stop doing. And and now that we've put off the old self and we've put on the new self that we looked at. We're going to look at these specific commands which, interestingly, touch on the fullness of Christ. In verse 15, it's the fullness of Christ's peace. In in verse 16, it's the fullness of the Word. And in verse 17, it's the fullness of His name. So, let's read verses 12 through 17. It says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, R.E.O. White, Reginald is his name, but he went by R.E.O. Uh, to all of his friends and colleagues. He observed regarding the fullness which these verses are talking about with this statement. He says, quote, The surest sign that you are carrying a full bucket is wet feet. Think about that. And and I had studied that this week, and that is so true, right? That I, I was not carrying a full bucket, but I... Uh, my dog's watering bowl, I went to the sink and I filled it too full. And as I was walking back to place it in its spot, my feet got wet. And um, of course, then with a wood floor, I had to get the water off the floor as well. But a full bucket means wet feet, which what we're talking about then is it spills out and affects other things. And whenever you attempt to Carry one. I mean, have you all had that experience? You can't go far with a full bucket, right? And when our lives are full of what he's talking about in these three verses here, full of God's peace, full of God's word, and full of his name, that is going to overflow, right? It's going to overflow, and people are going to see it. I think that's why if you go back even in Proverbs chapter 1, and and, and he says that the teaching... Of your mother and father are going to be a wreath on your head and an adornment for your neck. I mean, what what's that all about? You know, who cares, right? Um, and and that you know, oh, that's a nice hat. Oh, let me check out that bling. You know that you're wearing around your neck. It's it's attractive. The teachings of God are attractive to people, if if our lives are overflowing with it. You know, I mean. What's one of the telltale ways to to tell a Christian? What do you think? Well, we always say the fruit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? But what does that mean? I mean, I could have all those things in my life, but if they aren't overflowing, you don't know, right? I mean, should you be able to tell a Christian from a non? Yeah, right? Just by what? I mean, if they're an employee, maybe just by the way they treat you as you're at their establishment. Have you ever um, had the, the opposite of that, where you've been, you yourself have not been overflowing and nobody could tell and you were convicted of that? You know, does anybody want to share an experience like that? <laughs> I've got a horrible one, but we won't share mine. You poked him, He's he got one. Yeah, Uh, yeah. What would they say? You know, mom and dad are hypocrites. You know, they they act like oh haughty, tardy, high and you know high and lofty on Sunday, but boy, you ought to see them at home, right? I mean, certainly should that manifest? Should our kids be able to tell the difference when they're with us and then they go to their friend's house and they see? how their parents, their friends' parents, certainly, right? The fullness of God in our lives overflows to everybody around us. So the first one we're going to look at here is the fullness of his peace in verse 15. It says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So what is the peace like, right? What does that mean, let the peace of Christ, what is that like? You know, I can still remember when God began to work in my heart, with the truth of the gospel you know i'm I'm certain that I heard the Gospel growing up. Um, I grew up Catholic, but I'm certain I was around opportunities to hear the Gospel throughout my young life. I mean, I went to young life meetings right, and I mean I, you know that guy was you know going to be presenting the Gospel that was their mission to gather a bunch of teenagers together but most of the times when I went there, I was intoxicated and I went because girls went, honestly, right? So, but I still heard it nonetheless, right? And I think if you look back, um, we could all attest to the fact that we probably heard it. But, but I remember um, when I was sitting in church, honestly, the first time I'd ever sat in a Baptist church and the preacher began to preach John chapter 3 i For the first time in my life, I don't know why the time- well, I do know why it was god's timing, but you know for this time the 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 you know the scales were falling off my eyes, the plugs were coming out of my ears, and I felt guilty right before God, right I felt guilty against sending i felt guilty about sinning against God. I realized for the first time i was thirty eight at this time in my life, but I realized that that I was headed to hell, right? And then at the end of that service, those of you that know my whole testimony, uh, well, a couple of weeks later when we were back, I saw a guy that I hadn't seen in 25 years that I used to do drugs and alcohol with in high school. I can still remember riding around with him in Sandy Springs, smoking weed, skipping school. And, and, and then here he was at church, you know, of all places. And for uh, the two of us to meet, and he was so inquisitive about where I lived. He was a good Baptist evangelist. I didn't know it, you know, and the next day was uh, Labor Day and he showed up at our house at 10 o'clock in the morning. And, and I'm telling you all, after that meeting with him and he led us to Christ that morning, instantaneously I felt peace in my life. For the first time ever, in, in my, it saturated my whole being I didn't know what it was, to be honest with you. I couldn't have told you. I was like, man, this is weird stuff. But over, over that next week, the, the peace of God just surged over and over again into my life. And, and it was different than anything else I'd ever experienced. And um, it, Because it's the peace of, what does he say, Christ, right? That's the difference. In the brief hours before he died, Jesus said to his disciples, in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So the special peace Jesus calls my peace. He gives his own personal peace to his children, right? Isn't that incredible? It's just not the the peace of not having conflict in our lives because, I mean, still got that, don't we? <laughs> Right? I mean, conflict is part of life. It's the sense of wholeness and well being and completeness, the totality of God's peace poured out onto our lives, right? But it, it's the presence of Christ, really, is what we're talking about here. And his peace and his presence go hand in hand throughout the scriptures as we see those. A great example is that we won't turn to it, but it's in Numbers chapter 6. It was his presence that was with me that morning in my living room for the first time ever, right? And that was stark, you know? I mean, it was as drastic as light on, light off for me. You know, it's that experience of peace. It's the cessation of hostility with God, you know? Because, I mean, Scripture teaches us before this peace, what? We're enemies of God, stark enemies. And uh, I've heard Shane say before... You know, that's an enemy that is never going to win, right? Unless God, of course, changes that. So what are we supposed to do with this peace? He tells us there in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Well, what in the world does that mean? F.F. Bruce, which I quote a lot, he's one of my favorite commentators. Um, um, Dr. Ryan, a couple of weeks ago when he was teaching, I think quoted Boyce, right? And do you, Boyce, uh, proceeded, Bruce at at the Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I mean, you talk about a loaded pulpit for years. You know, they had this guy, and then they had James Boyce. Like, wow! I think that's the way it worked out. But Bruce says uh, Rule carried the idea of arbitrate in many extra biblical sources. The Greek word used here referred to the function of one who took it on on himself to decide what is right in a contest. The sense here is, let the peace of Christ be umpire in your heart amidst the conflicts of life. Let it decide what is right. Let it be your counselor. Isn't that good? So with that, listen to this story I I found. This is a story from the Salvation Army in the the 1800s uh, of a strong-willed woman. I need to change her name. This is not my wife. This lady's name was Warrior Brown. That's not... Not my mom, not my wife, maybe one of my sisters, no. Um, Because she was named Warrior Brown because of her fiery temper. And she would often be belligerent and become enraged, especially when she got drunk. Then one day she was converted. The peace of God came over her life like this. And her entire life was drastically changed uh, by the presence of God in her life. So at an open air meeting a week later, she told everyone what Jesus had done for her. Suddenly, a scoffer in the crowd threw a potato at her, causing a deep bruise in her body, a stinging bruise. And she'd not, had she not been converted, the story says she would have lashed out at that man furiously. God's grace, however, had made such a profound change in her conduct that she quietly picked up the potato and put it in her pocket without saying a word. No more was heard of the incident until the harvest time the next or several months later. Then the dear lady, who'd been known as Warrior Brown, brought as her offering a little sack of potatoes. She explained that after the open air meeting she had cut up and planted the insulting potato, and what she was now presenting to the Lord was the increase. That's the difference from Warrior Brown to Peace of Christ ruling in her heart, right? The Peace of Christ was the umpire in her life. She could have hurled that potato right back at the person. But how many words, you know, would you and I hold back if we were really letting Jesus be the umpire? Um, Particularly, I mean, think of the, the most intimate relationship, our spouses, right? It's an absolutely mind-boggling thing to me that in conflict that I would treat my wife, and I think that's why Paul goes into the husbands and wives in verses 18 and following here, but it's a a mind-blowing thing to me to realize that I would say things and treat my wife, the one that I'm one flesh with, more harsh than any other human being on this planet. Isn't that true? I mean, I don't know you all real well, so because of pride I'm not going to probably say some things to you that in the heat of the moment I would say to her. Is that not bizarre? But isn't that true? And then what do we have to do then? you think we'd learn, you know, well, please forgive me. But be careful, don't say I didn't really mean to say that, because if you didn't really mean to say it, it wouldn't have come off your lips. He did mean to say it. It was in your heart. It came out. So the correct response of asking forgiveness is, please forgive me. That's just another sign of how wicked I really am. Right? So anyway, that's umpiring. Too bad we won't listen to the umpire. We get thrown out of the ball game too many times. Right? But if we just be, let the peace of Christ. We've all experienced that at salvation. You know what I'm talking about. You know what it was like when you were first saved, right? So, and and this is this is for the church as well because he ends at the, towards the end of that second half of that verse. He says, "To which indeed you were called in one body." You know, Paul concludes this by saying, "You know this the one body that's the church," and then he says, "And be thankful," which again he repeats in verses sixteen and seventeen. So, when the buckets that we're carrying are, are full of Christ. Our lives are bathed with the peace of God and thanksgiving. All right, now let's look at the next fullness in verse 16, the fullness of his word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now there's a bunch of different ways we could unpack this verse, but we're really just going to look at at the fullness here. Dwell in you richly. You know, how can the Word of God dwell in you and I <clears throat> richly? We've got the peace of Christ umpiring our lives, and now we're supposed to let the Word of God dwell in us richly, the Word of Christ. Well, I think it all begins with something so profound as just reading it, right? Just reading it. The Bible, you know, there, there's some difficult things in there, but by and large, it's not hard to understand. You know, there's there's lots of resources that we all have at, at our fingertips, honestly, with the Internet, if we don't understand it, that we can go and, and gain things from. But, it, you know, don't use that excuse, well, I just don't get it. You know, um, Mark Twain put it in perspective. I mean, I, I just love this guy's quotes just all for life in general, right? He said... Quote, most people are bothered by those passages of scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I've always noticed that the passages in scripture which trouble me the most are those which I do understand. (laughs) Isn't that good? I mean, because what does that mean? Uh-oh, got to take action, right? Which... We don't like to do because pride keeps us from going there. So the Bible is understandable. We need to read it. We need to be comforted by it, and we need to be troubled by it. Um, that's appropriate for us, right? We we uh, <clears throat> realize that the re- reading doesn't guarantee that the that this will dwell richly in us, though, right? I mean, the the par- parallel quotation in uh, Ephesians five eighteen. Uh, Paul gives us some of the same results from the filling of the Spirit. Uh, He says that God's Word must be read, meditated on, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference, right? Because, I mean, there's people that know the Bible inside and out better than a lot of biblical scholars do that aren't believers. So the only way we can make application and let it dwell in our lives richly is to have it empowered with the Spirit of God as well. Right? So, it's not just a matter of discipline study. It's really a, a matter of the heart. And um, that's, as the Holy Spirit uses the word to impact our hearts, it becomes richer and richer. And, you know, again, not growing up in the church, when I was first saved, I mean, when we first, the first two or three times we went to church, we didn't take Bibles. We didn't know anything about that. And this was pre-electronic Bibles, so everybody carried one. And, so we went to the Christian bookstore and I bought a blue one and bought Kit a pink one, you know, King James. But nonetheless, man, it was it. That was it. And I remember reading and reading and reading. Then all of a sudden I discovered these center column cross references. And boy, I had paper clips there and here, everywhere. It's you know, just I remember just just going everywhere. It's just it was so rich, you know, for the first time in my life. You know, we had the uh, we probably got some kind of prize when we were first married to let the guy in. I don't remember what the sales was, you know, and you got the Bible, the coffee table Bible, they called it. You remember those? They don't do those anymore for you young people, but these things were, man, they were huge, you know, and of course they ask you, you want the Catholic one or the Protestant one? Well, we want the Catholic one. You know, That we I don't think we ever opened that thing. It had some cool pictures in it, but, um, you know, other than that, it, it, it wasn't, certainly wasn't dwelling richly in our hearts, right? So this, that's what Paul's talking about here, right? So look what he moves into. As you teach, admonish one another with all wisdom. That is the word that, you know, ACBC, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, changed the name three or four years ago from NANC, National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. That's the word neuthetic. Admonish one another. That's the whole premise of biblical counseling is to use the word of God to admonish one another, or the word of God admonishes, you know, us as we read it and study it. So as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know, there's a, um, Tertullian, the second century, uh, get, I guess Preacher talks about a description of what he calls Christian love feast. I can't help but think about Sue's husband, John, when I think of that word Christian love feast. John loves to talk about having a, a love feast around the, the body of believers. This happened often in the early church with singing. You know, somebody would be saved and they'd come into church next week just singing at the top of their lungs. I mean, imagine that. You know, John Michael stands up singing, you know, next thing you know, Kyle's up singing. Hymns broke forth just spontaneously in in a hearty chorus. And again, John calls me a lot when he's driving, and he loves to sing, doesn't he, Sue? I mean, and he, he knows the old Baptist hymnal, front to cover, upside down, and... And he'll just, I'll answer the phone, hello, and he'll just be singing. <laughs> and I don't sing very well, but it's just, it's encouraging, right? To, for that And that's what was going on here. There was music in their hearts. That's why Paul would write that. That's what he's talking about. And then that's repeated throughout history. You know, if you look at the, the awakenings of, of the faith over the last 2,000 years, you find that over and over again, right? Uh, the medieval Latin hymns. Uh, clustered around the 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 movement of the uh monasteries you know i never quite understood the monistic mindset there of you know somebody gets saved in that time you send them off by their you know up in a countryside retreat or something and they can't be real evangelistic with that but i mean think of the protestant reformation the rebirth of the music that came out of that of course you know we think of john wesley the great Preacher, but his brother Charles. I mean, the hymns we still sing those today, right? The hymns that come out of that. The uh, <clears throat> and then as a new Christian, I think you'll you see that, don't you? In people's lives, newly converted people are are and this is a this is not a condemnation, but a rebuke. I guess you know, for me personally, myself is that. That zeal that I had those, that first year anyway, with singing, you know, and worshiping the newness of it, you know, I mean, it, it just, that's why so many, I think of the Puritan writers always take us back, you know, remember, remember where you came from and, um, you know, I, I don't sing very well at all. My wife's got a great voice, but, but I do the joyful noise thing. You know, I try. And, um, you know, especially if you see me riding around in my vehicle with a song that I might like, I sing loud then, but nobody can hear me but the Lord. But, you know, it, it's kind of that thing of when, when the buckets of our lives are full, like we started out talking about, then, then you know, it's going to spill forth in song, it's going to spill forth in praise. Well, the third fullness he tells us about here in verse 17 um, is the fullness of his name. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I can't think of any other exhortation in scripture that's more comprehensive than that. Word or deed pretty much takes care of everything, doesn't it? You know, deeds can be teaching, eating. Squirrel hunting, cleaning the house, shopping, fishing. What else? Everything, right? And our words are everything that comes off of our lips. Even the unguarded moments. Everything we say or do is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now there's another passage that's probably popping into your mind about this time, right? 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Same same concept here. Everything we do or say is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Our actions must say that Jesus is what His name claims—that He is Lord. You know, um, and honestly, if just a few seconds of sin can disgrace that, right? So when all our lives are full of Christ praise to his name and word and deed, floods our paths in front of us because it's spilling all over the place and it brings refreshment to other people. You know, it is refreshing to be in the presence of a believer that is overflowing. And I think Paul's commanding us these things here because that's our responsibility, right? The fullness of Christ <clears throat> comes from an overflow of peace, the word of God, and the name of Christ. And he... Um, ends all three of these with thankfulness. Verse 15 ends with and be thankful. Verse 16 concludes with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And verse 17 says giving thanks to God the Father through him. So thankful, to be thankful. It literally says to be, or means to become thankful because we're to keep striving for deeper and deeper gratitude than what we have attained to this point in our lives now, interestingly, that word thankful, I'm not going to say it because I wouldn't say it right anyway, but it's the same Greek word that we get the English word for Eucharist, which is another word for the Lord's Supper, right? Which is a time of thanksgiving for us. <clears throat> so thus far in Colossians, from back at the beginning, we've considered the... the. Um, Cosmic fullness of Christ, who created and, and actually, even today, sustains the universe by his power. We saw that in chapter one. We've also examined the implications of his fullness in every area of life. So now, Paul takes us on a, on a very interesting venture here to look at the fullness of Christ in what we could call domestic life, right? It's, it's moving from the religion of the universe to the religion of the kitchen and the bedroom. So since Christ is the fullness of the universe, that means that he's the source of fullness in our homes as well. So let's, um, well, we'll look read it in a minute, but uh, we're going to read uh, cha- chapter 3, verse 18 through four, one. And just think of this could be titled How to Have a Full Rich Family Life, right? The, the text conca- contains three sets of exhortations here. Verse 18 and 19 is to the wives and the husbands. Verse twenty is, 21 is to the children and parents. And 22 through 41 is to servants and masters. So it's, it's very patently domestic here. It has to do with the home, the Christian home. It has to do with the relationship between a Christian, keyword and husband and a Christian wife. So it's, the teaching is for Christians who want to live as Christians. It's teaching is, is I mean, this, this is so absolutely needed today. It, it's, it, I, can't, I can't stress that enough. I had, last Saturday, a couple I was counseling at our church office and they informed me when they got there, that the divorce papers were in the car and the bank was still open. And I was like, oh, what does the bank have to do? Well, they got a notary at the bank. That's what the guy said. He said, the notary's there till 2, but we chose to come here instead. And I said, well, praise the Lord. We got about 40 minutes in. He slammed his Bible shut, put it on the shelf behind him, stood up, said, we're going to the bank, come on. And he looked at her and she just sat there crying and he said, you want me to put your Bible up too? And she said, sure. And he slammed it shut, put it on the shelf, walked out the door. Saturday morning, I'm praying, Lord, please don't leave this woman here with me alone. This isn't going to be good. What am I going to do? You know, don't let him leave. I heard the door go beep, beep, beep. Out the door he went. And I'm like, oh no. And uh, so talked with her for a couple of minutes and she got up and left and uh he was still out there whew, right um praise the lord for that but they i guess they went to the bank and got so this this is huge for for domestic uh christianity right and so let's look at this um these in ver- verse 18 and 19 um it says wives submit to your husbands as fitting in the lord husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them now, we've got to understand that historically this contrasts the plight of women in the ancient world. Listen to this quote by uh, commentator William Barclay as he writes on this uh, subject. He says, quote, Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal right whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatever in in the initiation of divorce. In Greek society, a respectable, respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing. She lived in the woman's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity, but her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. Both under Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belonged to the husband and all of the duties to the wife, End quote. So domestic rules given here were quite different from the day, (laughs) right? Quite shocking for these Colossian Christian men to be hearing something like this. Wives here, they're addressed equally with their husbands. Radically new concept. Um, The husbands and the wives both had duties, not just the wives. They were both admonished in the Lord, we see in verse 17. And, And the totality of their lives was to be regulated by this concept of being in the Lord, so this brought vast dignity to both men and women, right? They were under the Lordship of Christ, they were absolutely equal. so all of this was immensely elevating to women, as you can imagine, and at the same time within the marital relationship, these words established a hierarchy. There is a hierarchy right and f f. Bruce again says this quote, "Paul does hold that there is a divine instituted hierarchy." in the order of creation. And in this order, the place of the wife comes next after her husband. However, this does not suggest or does anywhere else in scripture that the wife is naturally or spiritually inferior to the husband or vice versa. And I mean, there is a hierarchy within the Trinity. So why wouldn't there be in God's creation as well, right? So, um, First, let's look in verse 18, the fullness through the wife. Christ's word to the woman in in the Christian home is submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I mean, let's be honest, right? There's probably not many statements that will rouse the modern, assertive, right-seeking, power-seeking culture than that, right? I mean, boy, oh boy, you want to rub somebody wrong, that's one of the first things that people that that women will bring up if they're wanting to push against Christianity, right? But it's God's design for fullness. Submit's not a synonym for servile, menial bondage, right? The appeal is to to free responsible people, and can only be heeded if it's done voluntarily. And on top of that, none are called to follow a man into sin, but. I believe that that women are hardwired by God to be under the authority of somebody. That's why at a wedding, you know, the preacher asks who gives this woman to be married, you know, and, and the dad says her mother and I, or I do, or whatever. Right? That's a transfer of male authority over the woman. They're they're hardwired. Women, believe it or not, guys want to be led, but we've got to lead them. They. They, you know, if they're not being led, then they, they desi- they're missing something that they're hardwired to want, right? So th- let's look at verse 19 then, the fullness through the husband. It's the counterpart injunction here. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So here the commandment to men is just as radical as it is to the women. Um, actually, even this, uh, commentator, One commentator said this, quote, Such a command does not appear in any of the extra-biblical household rules of the day. The novelty of such religious command must have struck the Colossian Christians with great power. Husbands were commanded to love their wives. What a novel thought, end quote, right? It was not erotic love. That's where most men are going to want to take that. That's not what he's talking about. It's not friendship love it's the agape love which is the unceasing care and loving service for the wife's entire well-being the sacrificial love right so what we're talking about here is this kind of love was light years beyond the the uh the formal um, ethics of the day and probably light years above today's as well and then again that parallel passage in Ephesians 5 um, 25 through 33 gives the prototype of this kind of love. It says, verse 25, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? That's a radical command to love, and it's only fulfilled when a husband loves his wife in the imitation of Christ's love towards mankind as a total. So I love this word. This is what we're talking about here. Is that a man's love for his wife needs to be incarnational, right? Incarnational. Genesis 2:24: A man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh, right? The ideal, the idea is mutual incarnation, two becoming one. And Paul brings that out, I think, in Ephesians 5:28, where he says, "In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. I mean, the the implication is there, right? This is a high call and may actually seem quite impossible sometimes, right? But it is possible to incarnate ourselves with our wife's emotions and mental processes. It is possible to have a spiritual incarnation with her. It is possible to love our wives as we love our own bodies. Paul implies that. We're going to love ourselves anyway. That's why he uses that comparison. This is a really interesting uh, story here. Dr. Robert Sizer, he wrote a book, uh, I think it was in the, I can't remember if it was the 80s or the 90s, called Mortal Lessons, Notes in the Art of Surgery. He was a surgeon. He tells of performing surgery to remove a tumor in which it was necessary to sever a facial nerve, leaving a young woman's mouth permanently twisted in palsy. In Dr. Sizer's own words, he says, quote, Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private, Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? she asks. Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I, so close, can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. That's what we're talking about, right? It is possible to love your wife as you do your own body. You know, practically this means that the husband must do all he can to understand her world. Um, I've shared this with you guys, some of you anyway, before a few years back, my wife and I were in Asheville and uh, my mom was with us and we were eating at a restaurant and I noticed a couple to my left and I said to the kid, I said, check that out. And... I mean, they were in their upper 90s, all right, sitting across from one another at this table. He is spoon-feeding her her soup, right? You get the picture? About the time Kit catches it, she's just squalling, you know, and I mean, I can't hardly even watch. Then, when he's done with the soup, he gets up, takes the napkin off of his lap, stands up, goes over, and pats her mouth sits back down, he continues to feed her. When they're done, he gets up again, goes over to the corner of her little chair, gets her little purse off, opens it up, gets her lipstick out, puts it on her, right? Puts it back in. I mean, mom's looking. We're all three crying at this point, you know. And then they get up and they walk out holding hands locked together, one flesh, out they go. I'm not sure who was driving, but, um, you know. (laughs) I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? This is loving incarnationally, right? But it has to be done by spending time together. Uh, You know, you guys know I don't embrace psychology, but one of the benefits they have is they got the money. So they get to do a lot of the research, right? And in 1986, there was an issue of Psychology Today, they carried an article called "Marriage Is Made to Last." They surveyed several hundred happily married couples, and in interviews uh, that were conducted privately with each spouse by themselves, without the other one, two things kept coming up over and over again. One, my spouse is my best friend. Two, I like my spouse as a person. Right. So the researchers, as they put their study together, developed, um, you know, the the. Um, the, the premise for their study, or not the premise, but the outcome of their study, uh, show showing how we can love incarnationally, and it starts with listening. Uh, the Bible scholar Howard Hendricks, he said this, quote, marriage is sometimes the dialogue of the deaf. Isn't that good? Because you can't hear if you're yakking, you know. You got to listen. The Harvard Business Review says 65% of an executive's time should be spent listening. Okay? So how much more in our marriages? Right? So much more so in our most intimate relationships of marriage. Matter of fact, Solomon Proverbs 18:13 said, "He who answers before listening, that is his folly and shame." So incarnational love means spending time together. It means listening, and it gives itself. Of course, that's what Christ's sacrificial love was. He died for us. He gave, right, uh, gave his life. So if we're to have that kind, we've got to be willing, men, to die for our wives. You know, this is a, a daily dying. This isn't a, yeah, at the altar when you get married. No, this is a daily dying, and that is far more difficult than a one one-time deal. Right, doing it over and over. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Say I had, um, you know, you've promised to fix the leaky faucet, and I hand you, uh, I was going to use baseball, but let's, the Falcons, you know, they were in the Super Bowl. This is Super Bowl week, and I've got 50 yard line tickets, and you've been promising her you'd fix the faucet. What are you going to do, right? That's where the rubber meets the road. That's dying to self, right? Um, Here's a great example of how when we do this, the impact that we can have on our wives. Anybody know who Ann Morrow was or who she married? She married Charles Lindbergh, right? Before their marriage, she was a timid young woman And, of course, you know, his claim to fame flying across the Atlantic solo, right? But he, I mean, he was a bonafide hero, and he's marrying this young, timid nobody of a woman. And she could easily have been swept aside with all the praise that came his way. But loved by him, she grew to become one of our country's most popular writers. Here's how she puts it, quote, To be deeply in love is, of course, a great liberating force and the most common experience that frees. Ideally, both members of a couple in love free each other to new and different worlds. I was no exception to the general rule. The sheer fact of finding myself loved was unbelievable and changed my world, my feelings about life and myself. I was given confidence, strength, and almost a new character, the man I was to marry believed in me and what I could do, and consequently I found I could do more than I realized." End quote. So the, the, the love that Charles poured on delicate um, Anne liberated her to soar to heights of being a prolific author. That's what sacrificial love can do. It elevates both partners in the marriage. So loving our wives as Christ loved the church also involves intercessory prayer for our wives, right? Husbands should strive to uh, pray incarnationally for our wives. You know, Peter says um, in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Treat them with respect as with a weaker partner and their heirs with the young as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You know, guys, if your prayers appear to be bouncing off the ceiling and coming right back down, not making it to heaven, probably not living with your wives in an understanding way. He says that will hinder your prayer life. And, you know, that's a command given by God to men. Nowhere in the scripture, nowhere is it said for a woman to live with her husband in an understanding way. This is a command to the men only and um, so, you know this thing in my pocket, this little recorder thing here, this more than likely, well not more than likely, I guarantee you this came with an owner's manual, right? I mean have you bought much that didn't come with an owner's manual? Probably not. Even an ink pen's kind of got a few little instructions right? But us guys we don't like to look at directions, you know I don't do puzzles, so if it's not pretty easy, then I don't even look at the directions. I just ask my wife to put it together, but anyway, um, she's really good at puzzles, and I mean, I can't, you know, I'm the kid that's trying to put the square peg in the round hole, you know, shave it down, make it work. Oh, it never occurred to me there might be one that actually fits that spot, but nonetheless, everything I have ever purchased came with an owner's manual, except and I didn't purchase her, but my wife. She didn't come with an owner's manual. How in the world am I supposed to live with her in an understanding way if I don't have a manual to tell me how to do it? Well, she does have a manual. Guess where it is? It's written on her heart. So a man of understanding, Proverbs 20, verse 5, tells us, will draw out like you draw water out of a well. you got to dip the bucket into her heart, find out what's going on, draw it out, and operate by it. Many times i've given little those little tiny pocket sized notebooks to men. Here is your owner's manual for your wife. It's blank. you got to fill it in right and I'm telling you I had an instance last week in counseling like this two times in an hour session i said there's there's Roman numeral one and two right there, you know, and then we unpacked what is A, B, and C under that you know and this guy was able to You know, so I don't, okay, stop. Let's find out. Draw it out, right? And now, guys, you get that owner's manual complete. And just like, you know, you might get a new one, uh, your printer, say, you know, they update it and you get some new instructions on it. Got to change it. You got to implement the old owner's manual. Well, a woman has the right to change. So that means what? This is a lifelong process of drawing out of her. Great example, a friend of mine, uh, they were traveling, and all he'd seen his wife drink in the last couple of years, I don't even know if they. this is an old story, if they still make tab. Do they still make tab? You know? Okay, so all she ever drank was tab. So they're traveling, he stops to get gas, and he goes in, to go to the bathroom, and it, well, yeah, I think I'll get something to drink. So he gets himself whatever, and he gets her a tab, uh, what well, she's always drank. Gets back out to the car and um, says, "Here, honey, I got this for you." Well, why'd you get that? <laughs> uh, well, that's what you drink. Well, I switched a couple of weeks ago. I can't stand that stuff anymore. <laughs> you know, get the owner's manual out. Scratch the tab off that she likes diet coke now or whatever. You get the point. It's always changing, and that's that's us. That's what we have to do, right? Um, we 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 got to get detailed with our wives, and um, you know. So, ending this lesson, we we we've seen two radical calls here. One is for the wives to submit, and the other the other is for husbands to love as Christ loves, and can't be taken in isolation. They absolutely go together, right? I mean, it's absurd to think that a Christian husband could uh, demand submission of his wife if he's not radically loving her, right? And you guys know as well as I do, to do that at the wrong time is like throwing gasoline on a roaring fire. It never turns out well. It's going to blow back on you and burn the hair off your head. So, brief words here are just a pattern of the fullness of a Christian marriage in, in life that Paul gives us here, so... We'll end with that, and next week we'll look at, um, start chapter 4. So, any questions or final comments on, on the fullness of God in our lives? No? Okay, well, we'll be dismissed.